Well, to me, success is having the freedom to choose what you want to do when you wake up and being able to give back. It's not how much money you have in the bank or how much is your net worth. It's being able to have the freedom. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Hot Pocket, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to real estate investor, car investor, and entrepreneur, Manny Koshman. Manny is a super successful real estate entrepreneur with a net worth of over 200 million bucks, but he didn't come from a wealthy family and he wasn't born with a lot of connections. Manny is a part of our American Dream series where we've been chatting with people who came here from other countries and have made it to inspire us and teach us exactly how they did it. Now, when Manny came, he did not speak English and his family slept in a car to survive. Today, Manny has an insane luxury car collection, which I got to see during the show, a real estate empire down in Southern California, and he teaches people how to do exactly how he did it. He's come a long way. You can check out Manny on Instagram and be able to learn more about him. It's at Manny Koshbin. That's M-A-N-N-Y-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N. If you've ever want to learn about how to go from selling nuts, yes, nuts, door-to-door, to having a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how Manny bounced back after losing it all. Two, why he believes success comes down to, you got to listen to find out. And three, the one mentor who changed his life trajectory forever. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more nuggets along the way. If you are listening to this and you were inspired to launch your own business, I want to help you. We have a course, Monthly 1K. It's helped literally over 10,000 people, which is bonkers. You can check it out to get help for yourself. It helps you with support. It helps you with the strategy of things that I've done to create a lot of successful business and all the mistakes I've learned along the way that you can avoid at okdork.com slash monthly1k. That's okdork.com slash monthly1k to sign up. Also, remember to go join our newsletter. That's okdork.com. We send out an email each and every week with exclusively juicy content just for subscribers. Go to okdork.com to sign up for the newsletter. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener L Jackal. They left reviewing painfully practical. <laughs> Noah has a way of breaking productivity and innovation down into painfully practical steps. When he talks about a topic, he inspires to take the most simple action, and it frustrates me that I haven't thought of these myself. He does a great job of interviews. He's great at asking questions that bring out one or two key decisions that led to his guest success. Damn, man, thank you for your feedback. That really made my morning and my day and my life. I hope every other one of you is taking a lot of action and having a great life from listening to the show. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You can also tweet at me, at Noah Kagan. I check every single one of them. How's life? Life is amazing. Yeah? Of course. You get up, Everybody has the same options. People say you don't, but you do. <laughs> you know, you get up, you just want to how hard you want to strive for success. And you start taking that first step. And then 30 years later, you're way up on the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> this is where you thought you'd be. Yeah, I had a vision board. I actually still have it from 35 years ago, almost 40 years ago. I drew my dream home, my, even my wife. You drew her? Yeah. And the home. What, and what else did you put on your vision board? Well, some cars. I love cars. And then I used to track actually my finances. This is when I was like early 20s, right? I used to write down like how much I want my net worth to be. Back then, I put $10 million net worth because I thought that was like a multi-billion yeah. <laughs> dollars. You know, this is like 35, 40 years ago. But yeah, as I keep rewriting my goals and still climbing that mountain, a lot of my wife says, when are you going to quit? Like, let's go travel the world. Or so. But I enjoy the grind. I enjoy the hustle. You know, some people call it the chase. But if you enjoy the process, 
And success is addicting. You know, you buy one car, your first Bugatti, second Bugatti, third Bugatti, then you buy another one, then you buy more properties. You know, if you're enjoying the process, why quit, right? Mm. So that's why I think most successful people, they have a hard time retiring because they're enjoying it. For the people that don't know you in like 30 seconds, like can you share your business story just at a high level? Yeah. So I'm Manny Koshpen. I made my money in real estate, primarily commercial real estate. I have the passion for cars, as you guys can see. But my journey wasn't easy. I probably went through five or six different businesses. I failed many times until I found success in buying real estate, adding value, flipping it for a profit. And I've been doing that for nearly 30 years now. And so for your story, you grew up in Iran. What was going on and what was the story for you to, to come to America? Yeah, so Iran obviously had history of war with Iraq. At the time the war was going on, my dad had several brothers that got injured. One of them died from chemical bombs they used in the war. And two weeks before my 14th birthday, my dad decided to, you know, just take off and avoid me going to the army because at age 14, they... Basically, you, you cannot leave the country. You got to submit to an army. Okay. And that's pretty young age. And seeing what happened to his brothers, he didn't want me to go get killed or get injured. So two weeks before my 14th birthday, we decided to leave Iran, went to Turkey, was able to get a visa, and we came to U.S. None of us spoke a word of English except my dad. My dad had been to U.S. before, and you know he was educated and. It was a senior cost accountant for oil company and then for another manufacturing company that was basically American company in Iran. Okay. So luckily he spoke English, but I took three hours of ESL for the first two years in high school when I was here from 14 to 16 because I didn't speak any word of English. So pretty challenging upbringing because we didn't have any money. We ran out of money. We ended up, you know, living in a car for a few months until my dad got a job, was able to get an apartment. But all that pressure, everybody went on there because of me, that kind of gave me the guilt trip and I turned that into motivation, tried to be successful so I can retire my parents, pay them back. And I did just that Yeah, Good for you. after many different failures early on. But it's been a very interesting journey and I'm happy to share it because I know there's a lot of immigrants that come to this country for the American dream and they get discouraged after a couple of failures. And that was exactly me. But look at me now. So you gotta never give up. That's my motto. What was it like for you when I ran at 14? Do you remember being there? What was that like? Yeah, I had two best friends. We lived in a smaller city outside of Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. And my dad had a hardware store. I would call us middle class. You know, we weren't like wealthy by any means. But I had two friends and we used to play soccer out on the street. Typical things you do, you know, when you're 10 to 14 years old. And I miss it because it was like, life was so simple. House was paid off. My dad was making enough money. And I used to walk to school with my best friend. And we used to go hunting. We used to go camping. And then the war happened, obviously, and then everything changed, right? And my dad decided to come to America, which was very brave of him to do that because my sister, there's four siblings. My sister was the youngest at the time. She was six months old. And to take four kids with you, a six-month-old daughter with no major plans and a few thousand dollars in your pocket, I don't know if I could do that today. Yeah. You know, that's pretty brave. Yeah. 
did you see any of the war when you were there? Did you notice anything? No, no. I mean, I saw my uncles go to army. They got injured. One of them passed away from, like I said, the chemical bombs. But I never really went to army. Yeah. But we used to actually go on the roof when there used to be sirens during the war. And we were in a small city, but my other relatives that lived in Tehran, yeah. they got the blunt of it because that's where they were getting bombed. That's crazy. Now, like, the worst thing for a 14-year-old is, like, your iPad goes out of batteries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, you guys were about going to war and things like that. When you came to America not speaking English, do you remember what your first week was like? Yeah, well, you're just, like, on a different planet. I don't know my way around. I don't have any friends. I don't speak. And I don't have any money. So, basically, Americans that are born into this country, they have all of that, which I didn't have. So, I had a pretty rough start, if you want to call it. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when we first moved here, we went to a Motel 6 in Costa Mesa. And then after a few nights, my dad figured that we're going to run out of money. So we moved into a car. <laughs> but I was at the pool, I remember, and it was a, this young kid. He was giving me the bird, you know. I don't want to... You could do the best. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> he was giving me the bird. And I thought he's saying hi. So I was like patting him <laughs> on the back. Somebody was sitting at the pool. He goes, no, no, that's not good, not good. I didn't know what the heck is going on. <laughs> so I didn't, not only I didn't speak English, I didn't know the sign language. <laughs> That's crazy. What, what's it like to sleep in a car with six people? And like, oh, I think you guys had a station wagon? It's not good. Yeah, it was a 1972 Datsun, a station wagon, a lot of cold nights. It wasn't good. But, you know, I think it was so much suffering and mentally pressure on my mom, especially, that, you know, sometimes your subconsciously, you block it. You don't think about it. I look at the good times now. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't easy. Can't imagine. So you're in a car with the family and eating, like, how are you guys Bananas. <laughs> really? Banana was the cheapest source of food. But, you know, it wasn't for a long period of time. My dad was able to get a job because he spoke English and he had, you know, a degree in accounting. So he got a job at, ironically, city of Costa Mesa. It was a valve company. So within the, his first paycheck, we moved to Adam's Apartments, which is also in Costa Mesa. So ironically, Costa Mesa, the city of Costa Mesa has been very rewarding for me because I just bought one of the most iconic properties in Costa Mesa. It's incredible property right by South Coast Plaza Mall. Anyhow, I went to South Costa Mesa High School. I graduated in Westminster High School because my dad bought a condo in Garden Grove and I was forced to move when I was at 11th grade. What were your parents telling you during that time? Well, my parents wanted me to go to college. So I attended two weeks of college, IBC. It's in Irvine. And then I realized, you know, everybody's monkeying around, throwing paper at each other, pens. And I'm like, I showed up there with a briefcase. You know, I'm like, wearing a suit. I'm ready to make money. <laughs> really? Yeah. And then after two weeks, I quit. And my mom didn't talk to me for like several months. She was very depressed and upset. But I was eager to make money, right? So at age 18, I started my own business, selling nuts door to door. That was my first business. It did great until health department find me. They said, hey, you got to have health permit every time you re repackage food for resale. And I didn't know that. So I closed that and I had about $20,000 saved. And then I realized, you know, maybe I should put that to work. One of our friends used to sell gas stations. Because okay. you know, at 20 grand, you could buy a mobile gas station because you get, you know, 90% financing. I'm like, really? Yeah, I was 20 at the time. So we opened escrow. I put my $20,000 in a bank, gave me a loan officer, turned out to be a con artist, and I lost all my money. That was my first real failure, back to zero. Because it's one thing not having money and not making it, but once you make it and then you go back to zero, it's a hard landing, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
And then I went back to working at Winston Tires to, again, work for somebody else to save money. And then I got my real estate license because every time I was having a Porsche, Ferrari coming to a tire shop and I was upselling them, you know, bricks, tires, whatever, I would ask them, I'd say, hey, what do you do for a living? And they would say, oh, either I'm an attorney, but nine out of 10 times either they own a mortgage company or real estate, right? I'm like, wow, so real estate's good. So I got my license and then one of the customers that used to come to Winston Tires hired me as a loan officer. So I worked at a loan company for less than a year and then I learned everything and then I opened my own mortgage company. In 1993, I was 22 years old. I opened a mortgage company. I made 290,000 bucks the first year. And that was my first taste of success. Real money, right? At 22, 23 years old, having that kind of money. So I bought a 500 SL. I bought a small little condo. I was wearing three-piece suits and smoking cigars. That was like, I fell on top of the mountain. And then rates went up and all my mortgages died because back then there was a refinance boom. Okay. And you wouldn't lock your rates in. You would wait you know, get all the loans approved and then lock them at the last minute to get a bigger rebate from the bank. So I had 40 loans on my boards. Rates went up. Greenspan, 1994, I think he took the rates up three quarters basis point. Kind of similar to what's happening now. Today, the Fed increased the rates for the 10 consecutive time, right? And all my loans went dead. We closed that down. And then I figured, hey, I got a couple hundred thousand dollars saved. I realized discount stores are doing good, 99 cent only stores. Yeah. I said, why don't I do 79 cents a store, 79 cents plus. So I opened a 10,000 square feet store in Santa Ana, 79 cents plus, and it started making good money. And then I opened a second location. That didn't do well. I closed that one down. And then Food for Less opened right next to me. They started competing with me. And I started going from making 20, 30 grand a month cash to losing money. So at that point, I'm like, this is my second failure. So I start selling my cars. I sold my condo. After two years, I owed 200 some thousand on my credit cards, paying 20% plus interest rate. And everybody told me file bankruptcy because I owed money to Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Rockview Farms, you know, all these vendors, right? They give me 30 days term. And so my accounts payable was going up. My sales were dropping because this big store opened next to me, competing with me. And I said, I'm not going to file bankruptcy. This country, by then I knew, you know, because I was in mortgage business, this country is built on credit. If I file bankruptcy, I'm dead. So I fought and basically let go of about several employees. And I called my parents to come and become cashiers. It took me two or two and a half years to get to a positive cash flow. And I ended up selling it for 185000 And then I still owed more than I got from escrow from selling the mm. store. So I'm like, okay, if I pay my credit cards, I'm still going to be in the hole. This was December 1998. I opened an E-Trade account. I started trading stocks. So I got it up to 700 grand by September 1999. Then I pulled most of it out and I bought a shopping center and two REO homes. And that's how I saw my real estate. That was a fast version. It was a decade of time in a few yeah, minutes. But the point is, I was at the fork. I could pay the credit cards off and didn't have enough to pay it all off. I would still owe money with no income or I could risk it and try to increase my equity and be ahead, right? It worked out, luckily for me. All my friends call me, you're an idiot. Why are you taking your money out? I said, look, it's too good to be true. Like in nine months of more than triple the money. So I left 80 grand in there. I'm like, you know, if I can make it, 
I can do it with the 80 grand. All the stocks I was buying, they're obsolete now. AOL, CMGI, Brocade Communication. I remember those. They used to split three for one every time they announce earnings. <laughs> Let's come back on a few things. So one, how do you think being an immigrant impact your success, especially early on? Well, I think the hunger, you know, coming from another country, you feel you're in a new environment and you want to prove yourself. You're also learning, right? Because you don't know the environment. You don't know how the business works, the system works. But more than anything, I think just the hunger in me because I was rock bottom. I didn't have any place to go but up. And I think that was what created that drive in me, you know. And a lot of people take that freedom, resources, friends, being able to speak English, all that for granted because they're here. But if you take all that away from you, you get really desperate. <laughs> yeah. Real quick. How do you think others can benefit that aren't immigrants with that mentality? Or how can they practice that or develop that? Well, challenging themselves, for one, you could still go, you know, U.S. is over 50 states. You can go to other states that are, you know, having a new driver as an economy and open a new business, just challenging yourself instead of setting stagnant someplace, you know. Yeah. What were some of the discrimination or challenges you faced? Oh, my God. I can go on and on on that one. Yeah. Camel riders, sun niggers. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, back then, there was still a lot of discrimination, especially towards Middle Easterns. So I used to work at Kmart at age 16. I was mopping floors, collecting shopping carts, and I used to always avoid walking by cafeteria because they used to call me names. So I used to go around. <laughs> you know, luckily that period's over. U.S. is now primarily a lot of immigrants. So it's a lot less now, right, than 40 years ago. But it was tough. A lot of name calling, especially when I was selling nuts. What I used to do with my nut business used to go to all the auto dealerships because I used to sell cashews, trail mix, candies to the secretaries, and then the salespeople love nuts, you know? <laughs> you know, the trail mix, pistachios, and whatever. So <laughs> one time I walked to a Toyota dealership, I think it was Toyota, and this GM came at me yelling, screaming in front of everybody, the entire sales floor. Tell me, get the F out. And it was very humiliating. And I'm standing there with my basket of nuts. So... I remember, you know, walking out, I had tears in my eyes. I'm like, you know what? It's okay. Suck it up. And I went to the next dealership and I sold some nuts. So <laughs> you just got to keep going, right? Yeah. Do you think you used that discrimination and name calling and like negativity and, and funneled that over the years? You were selling to these car dealerships and now you have your own dealership. Yeah, I guess so. If you put it that way, <laughs> you know, sometimes life gives you challenges or sometimes people cause challenge for you, right? You can either accept it and get defeated or you can prove I'm wrong. So I turn my doubters or haters now into my followers. <laughs> <laughs> what were the skills that you developed at this early time that, that other people should be learning from? Because I definitely think one, it sounds like selling. And another thing you did, which I thought was amazing, is that if you're seeing someone that has something you're interested in, you asked. It sounded like when you saw these people bringing nice cars, like, what are you doing? Because yeah. then I can maybe copy what they're doing. I would say definitely be curious. Always ask questions, be a sponge. Even now, I'm always on Google, YouTube. I'm always learning what's going on, what's the trends, what's happening. But always surround yourself with people that are more successful than you. And also be curious, always ask questions. And I would say, you know, take a sales position in anything. Because when you do sales, you're interacting with people, you learn a lot. You know, everything almost in life is sales. So that would be my advice. What was your pitch when you were selling nuts? 
Oh, selling nuts. I don't remember what I used to be. All I know is I was running always a deal. I was curious, how does doing the social media help your business? Does it get you clients? Is it? No, I mean, my business, I mean, I did start a mentorship program. So it helps a little bit with that. But really, I've been on social media since 2011 or 10 when Instagram opened. Yeah. Before that, I was on Facebook. And before that, I was on MySpace. So I have always been trying to share my story, you know, with everybody because I feel like that's part of me giving back. And, you know, I donate a lot, millions of dollars to different charity organizations for years now. But you can give somebody money that helps them temporary. But if you teach them knowledge, you know, how to fish. Yeah. And so give them the fish, you know, that will change their life. Yeah. So that's why I like to share my story on social media. Who helped you when you think about like how you're trying to help and teach others now? Who do you think of or what do you think of? There was no particular person. It was many people that saw me how hard I'm trying and helped me out. Like Mr. Williams was my first landlord when I had the store. And obviously when the other store opened next to me and I started losing money and I was bouncing rent checks to him, but he knew how hard I'm working. I'm working seven days a week, 14, 15 hour days, right? Almost like over a hundred hours a week. And he told me, he goes, look, you remind me of me when I was young, when I came to Orange County, when you sell the store or you close it or whatever you do, come see me. You should get into real estate. And he was a very wealthy landlord. He owned probably a few hundred million dollars worth of real estate, but he liked my drive, determination, and just the fact I wasn't giving up and trying to pay his rent. He really appreciated that. So when I sold the store, put the money in E-Trade account, multiple that several times, and then I called Mr. Williams. I said, I'm ready. He sent me his broker, and he showed me the few shopping centers, and I cherry-picked the one that I thought found it to be most value-add play. And uh, so he was my first mentor in real estate. He helped me. So he pointed me in the right direction with his broker. I kept in touch with him for like 10 years, but sadly, I think he passed away. He was much older at the time. And then several other mentors, I would say, JP used to be a president of a bank. My first SBA when I bought my second property in Santa Ana, I made my first million dollars on one property. He was instrumental. I share my life story and he approved my SBA loan. And that was a sweet deal. That was year 2000, so 23 years ago. JP, I still keep in touch with. So several people throughout my journey that have kind of helped me, point me in the right direction. I appreciate everyone's effort and helping me to get to this point. But what I'm trying to say is a lot of people wait for that helping hand. I was never waiting for that. It just happens. They see you're genuinely trying, you know, forces of universe, whatever you want to call it, line up for you. I can't imagine also feeling so discriminated and discouraged at these times. And then how did you even know what to think of a vision? Because what I'm noticing of some people is they don't know how big they can even dream, like or how far they can even go. So how were you thinking about that? I just looked at people that were around me that were successful. Like when I was at Winston Tire, I used to see people coming there with Mercedes convertible, a few times Ferrari, but a lot of Porsches. So early on, to me, success was having a convertible Mercedes. And that's the first car I bought when I made money. <laughs> but I didn't even know there is a Bugatti in existence. I didn't know what Bugatti is. But then years later, I got involved with higher caliber friends that had Bugattis. I'm like, wow, I learned how much technology, legacy, the story behind Bugatti, Ettore Bugatti that built Bugatti. Then I started building a passion for cars and, you know, they're like fine arts. So your dream keeps growing with you as long as you 
uh, have the driving you to grow. Your circle changes constantly. I love that you, I look on Reddit or Twitter, you see people complaining about their landlord. I like that you said, hey, let me talk to my landlord. Yeah. And maybe that's something I want to do. It doesn't mean you have to be your landlord, but it could be anybody. There's a lot more available people you can learn from than you realize. Absolutely. I don't know if you can teach hunger, but you had this hunger of coming to America, being discriminated, not speaking the language, living in a wagon yeah. that at almost at all costs, it sounds like you were willing yeah. to take risks. Honestly, to get for people that are complaining they're not successful, they're just not hungry enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, because if you got the hunger in you, you're going to find a way. I tell people, you know, if you pour water from top of the mountain, it'll find its way down. But first, you got to climb the mountain to pour the water. <laughs> so that's the hunger. Yeah. What's your dreams now? Well, my dreams keep changing. Now that I got two kids, you know, my dream is to travel more and see other parts of the world. And 2023, I'm exercising that dream. I'm planning more trips with my wife and kids. But 2024, 2025, hopefully in five years, I'm 52. So by 55 and on, I want to be able to basically live more outside of U.S. than here. You know, just travel more. Awesome. If you haven't traveled, you haven't really lived. You know, you got to go and see the rest of the country. I mean, rest of the world. Yeah. So much to see. So you lost all that money in the gas station. You got conned for 20000 You had the store where you then were 180000 in debt. Mm-hmm. I was curious, how do you think about risk? You know, I run a, a company that does relatively well, AppSumo.com, and I don't think of myself as a risky person at all. I can't imagine losing my money. So I, I was curious how you think about that and how people can maybe learn from you. Well, everything's risk, right? But as you power up and you have, you know, more higher caliber friends and educated people around you, you can take calculated risk. I say you always want to take risk, but there's a difference between investing and speculating, right? Like Bitcoin, that's not investing. Your speculating is going to keep going up. But real estate, if somebody's mismanaging a property, you analyze it, say, wow, it could be worth twice if I just manage it properly and lease it up. Well, that's calculated risk. You're taking risk buying it, but there's a known upside because you're aware of the deficiencies and what you could do to improve it and add the value. So that's what I teach in my mentorship classes. So a lot of people, they want to get rich quick. They want to buy crypto. They want to buy stocks. They chase that all their life. So what I like to tell people is like, stick to real estate because God's not making any more earth. (laughs) And if you know what you're doing, it's best hedge against inflation. A house that costs you 30 years ago to build 50 grand, it's going to cost you 500,000 today because the drywall, the nail, the labor, it's gone up significantly since 30 years ago, right? Labor and cost of goods doesn't go down. That's called inflation. So if you buy investments that are a good hedge on inflation, like real estate, long-term, you're going to be fine, as long as you can weather the storm during recessions because everybody gets hit. Yeah. Can you tell us about those first real estate deals that you did, the shopping center and the two REOs or like foreclosures? Or? Yeah, REO or real estate owned. It stands for basically bank-owned home. Because I think for a lot of people out there, if they want to make a million dollars in real estate, like they're curious, like, all right, how do I just get started? Yeah, well, to get started first, I would say it's not with residential because the easiest one to leverage. And just like any other investment, leverage is a key because not everyone's going to have two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars to buy something cash. So you want to get financing, which is leverage. And I bought my first home in 1996 using FHA loan. So I only put 3% down. And I was a real estate 
licensee, so I used my 3% commission. So basically, I bought it with 1300 bucks out of pocket for closing costs. It was a bank-owned property in Garden Grove, and I bought that, and then after a year, I sold it for $80,000 more. So my 1300 turned to eighty within a little over a year, and then I turned that and bought another REO home, did the same thing. So fix it up and fix and flip. That's how I started my journey. Some people may have twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars cash, and they may be able to buy something without FHA. But how to get started? I would say start with residential. Timing's key. If you bought anything in two thousand seven, it would take you ten years to get your money back. But if you bought it just three years later, two thousand ten, you bought almost any real estate and held it for ten years, you would have made money, right? So timing is very important because real estate cyclical. And it's not like at stocks, you know. Apple stock may never, even in a recession, never go back 10 years where you used to trade, but typically real estate does. So timing is very important. I teach that in my class. You want to buy during down cycles and you want to sell during the peak or near the peak. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Well, I was curious for the first one. So how did you make your first million in real estate? Can you tell us more in detail about that deal? Sure. So that was a commercial property year 2000 because I did own this store. I could qualify for SBA loan for a commercial property to build a vacant building in, on First Street in Santa Ana. So I bought that for 675000 Again, it was from the bank. I bought that with 10% down, $67,000 out of pocket. I remodeled it, and then I sold for $1.6 million in less than a year. So that was my first million bucks on a single flip. And then I turned that and used the cash to my advantage, and I started writing a lot of offers on Apartment buildings in Long Beach, you know, six unit and up. And I was able to buy some, you know, with short closing. So use that to my advantage of getting a price reduction. In return, close it quick with no contingency. So again, I took risk, but it was calculated risk because I knew if they're asking 900 grand and I offer them 650 grand, they settle for 700. I just made $200,000, right? Less than what they're asking because I was able to perform quick and buy the Aziz. And then I did that, so I flipped probably two, 300 units, and then I started doing office buildings, the similar concept. As a matter of fact, the building I recently bought for 22 million, I wrote a million and a half dollar non-refundable deposit day one, and there was an offer 26 million, four million more, but the seller gave it to me for 22. So why did they do that? Because they want a certainty. So seller was very wealthy individual and just wanted certainty that the person is gonna close the other offers had 90-day due diligence. They wanted to develop it, go to the city, see what they could be built on it. He just wanted certainty. So in real estate, you want to see what the seller's objective is. And if you can fill that void, you know, make extra money up front. So <laughs> I do like that because it's like if you can deal with more uncertainty, you can get bigger upside. What was it like to make the first million? It was great. So I'm born in 71, so I was 30. It was great because back then a million dollars was a lot of money. Right now, a million dollars is not a lot of money, right? Or maybe it is, I don't know. <laughs> you lose concept of money when you know you buy five million dollar cars. But obviously I did a ten thirty one exchange, but when I had my statement that shows a million dollars in ten thirty one exchange cash, that was a good feeling. I felt like I made it. Like Borat says, great success. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the moment you felt like you made the American dream or when was yeah. that? Well, that was definitely a, a milestone that I never forget because I was writing offers, you know, buying the six unit, nine unit apartment complex, all cash, 10 day close. And I was 30 years old. That's a pretty good feeling. 
you're sending a powerful seed when you can tell somebody, hey, I'll close in one week, but I want 200,000 off. You know? And that worked out really well for me too because that was year 2001, 2002. And then the real estate had a good run up till 2007. So I was able to amass a portfolio from that $1 million I started to over $100 million in real estate by 2007. All right, we got to unpack that a little bit because you make it sound so easy. Like, yeah, I saw the building, I made an offer. The thing that I've always kind of avoided about real estate is anyone can do it. Like I do tech because that's much harder or making videos like this. It's like not everyone can go and do these things. But I'm missing, like everyone's doing real estate. How are you able to be in the, it sounds like the top echelon of performance. Like what were you doing Well, I would say my timing was, I was very lucky because that, you know, five, six year of run we had in real estate, it was unprecedented. Similar to what happened, you know, in the past five years, right? But I use the same concept of just flipping out of each value add into the bigger deal. So basically I scaled my portfolio. At some point I had over 2 million square feet in real estate, mostly in Houston. And then in 2007, I realized just like 1999 when I sold my stocks, I realized, okay, this is a little too good to be true. People were bidding on my high-rise buildings from Florida, New York, without seeing it on an $18 million high-rise and had multiple offers. I'm like, this is not normal. It's just too good to be true. So I sold my portfolio in 2007, made a lot of money. I had 1031 exchange and bought a bunch of shopping centers that are anchored by grocery stores and a bunch of, about a million square feet of industrial, Halliburton, FedEx, Continental Airlines. These were all in Houston. Because I knew those tenants have a strong balance sheet and they can weather the storm. If we have a recession, surely what happened? We had a recession. Most of my high-rises went back to the bank. I ended up buying five of them from the bank in three years later and sold them again. That's another story. But <laughs> So what I'm saying is if you take calculated risk and you know how to underwrite a property and you know you're on the right cycle, your timing's right, real estate's pretty predictable. A few things there. One, I was checking out one of your Instagram stories and I actually thought it was, I liked how it was contrarian. It's like, hey, go buy office buildings because everyone's afraid of those. And there is some truth. It could be wrong, but there's also some interesting point like, hey, this is what everyone's afraid of now. So maybe there's something there with what you've done it twice. So I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of how do you notice something's an opportunity? And then how do you have the humility to say, okay, this is enough? Well, you know, I'm not perfect. Like I bought a 12 story building in Houston a year and a half ago. Well, I thought everyone's working from home. They're going to be forced to come back. Several companies have tried Apple, Amazon, so many, right? They've tried to, you know, Salesforce, they try to force their employees back, but they realize, you know what? Employees don't want to go back to office. But at some point, that tide is going to turn. I think when unemployment goes up, it's going to be from employee market, it's going to be employer market. So they're going to say, hey, either you come back or you don't get hired, right? So that will change, but this is a different dynamic we're dealing with right now when it comes to office because of working from home. And then you got AI, which is going to eliminate a lot of probably back office staff. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So technology is changing the landscape for real estate. This happened 20 years ago with big box retailers, the malls, because of e-commerce, right? People buying, so a lot of malls are not doing well. With office, this may happen, but... That doesn't mean that it's not an opportunity. You can buy a two, three-story office building, which usually is tailored for owner-user, like this building, and you buy a distress, add value, and sell it to someone that wants to get a 90% financing, occupy it, right? So there's a lot of ways. But 
In this market right now, I'm staying away from vertical office. So anything over three story and up, I'm not touching it because I bought that 12 story building a year and a half ago from a bank and I'm having a hard time leasing it because people are working from home. So it doesn't, you said you make, uh, make it sound easy. It's not easy because sometimes you do mess up. But if you have, you know, 40 buildings in your portfolio and you messed up on one of them and it's not performing, it's okay because you're diversified. Right. It is interesting because when we started the conversation, you said, oh, I don't know, I like success and I want more cars and more things. But you also seem to have a, a sense of, hey, this is enough. Like something's a little bit too much right here in terms of the stocks when you're doing that, when you're doing mm-hmm. these buildings. So there's something to appreciate and kind of for others to think about yeah. when like, hey, maybe I have more than enough or something's feeling weird here. If someone is just starting out and they want to make a million dollars in real estate and that's, the, that's their goal liquid, they don't have much money though. Like what, what would be the steps they'd follow? So you said, you're saying residential? Like, how would you think about that? Yeah, residential, well, nowadays with technology, back when I started 30 years ago, there was no internet. So I had to actually fly out to Houston, meet with a listing broker, walk the properties, and then I would pick which one I want to buy. Now, you get on CoStar, LoopNet, there's so many multiple listed services, you can kind of do your research online. And to that point, you can also network with other people that have money and if you do your research and you find a nice value at real estate that's distressed and you do your research, say, hey, okay, this mess managed. If we do this to this out parcel, this tenant, sell it separately or lease this subdivided, lease it to multiple smaller tenants that pay higher rent per foot, the comps are there to support double the price. And you go to an investor, network with other investors that have equity bring them as an equity partner, and make a million bucks. You can do a split. There's so many ways, so many options you have now that you didn't have 30 years ago. So whoever says they can't make a million bucks, that's just an excuse. They haven't tried hard enough. So doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. It may take them a year to two years to absorb and study that market, to be able to sell that to an equity investor. So it's not like over a month, they come to my course and they can hone their skills in a month. This is a business that takes time to get educated and power up. Yeah, because I think what's interesting is how many places have you bought and how much have you spent in real estate over the years? Oh, over a billion. Maybe two billion. I don't know. I think what's also interesting in that, so how many properties is that? Are it like hundreds? I don't know. 70, 80, maybe 100. Like one deal right now I bought for 22 million and I'm opening escrow for 72 million. So You're opening escrow for 72 million? Yeah, yeah. Han, so the person that was selling it, what did they not see that you were able to do? Oh, I can't disclose that to you. No, I'm just kidding. No, I have a confidentiality with it. It's a huge company buying it from me. But this property was basically, I'm repurposing it. So it's basically land play. I bought it because the substantial land uh, in a high density area. And this developer is going to come and put, you know, four to 600 apartments on it. So to them, they're repurposing the dirt. So it's good money for them. What's the value of your current portfolio today? I don't even know. No, I'm just kidding. No, a couple of hundred million. I've been waiting for a recession to buy because I made all my money in recessions. And that's why I have probably $30 million in cars. Last recession, I only have one Bugatti <laughs> because I was buying a lot of properties. So now getting ready, gearing up to load up because next two years, I think it's going to present the mother of all buying opportunities when it comes to commercial. Not so much residential maybe, but commercial real estate a lot of defaults. So I know I'm looking to double, triple that portfolio value. Two comments on that. One, you've bought 70 or 80 and you have a portfolio of hundreds of millions now and you've spent billions. I also think it's like how many places did you put offers on that you didn't get? 
Because I always oh. think that's like kind of a thing that people don't realize. Like, how many have you swung that didn't work out? A lot. <laughs> on a good day, I look at probably 20 properties, not physically, but, you know, on my lead flow. And I probably write an offer every three, four months on one. That's 150 deals a month I look at. Yeah. And in six months, that's 900 properties I look at. And then I make one offer. <laughs> and I haven't been able to get anything in escrow for the past 18 months. That tells you. A lot of swinging, but I'm not hitting the ball yet. Yeah. I think that's the part I really wanted to highlight. Yeah. Because your strategy now, it's like you're looking for opportunities and recessions, in it, but it's not, you just not go on in, you just go buy one and, and it magically works. It's like, I think people don't realize that. You have to swing a lot of bats to hit in real estate. And you got to be patient because it's a game of patience and you got to just wait for those cycles. Right now that we are in a down cycle, so it's already started. And with the Fed's increasing the rates 10 times, that's going to accelerate it. It already has. And I think the next 18 months, if people are, you know, geared up financially and mentally and powered up, knowing what they're going to be doing in which stock market, they can make amazing returns. What are the contrarian opportunities or contrarian things that people should be prepared for thinking about? Well, you know, when uh, contrarian mentality works with anything, like cars, when we had the lockdowns, some cars were selling for 50 cents on a dollar because people panic. You know, they have the fear of, oh, it's the end of the world. Uh, right now, it's the banking industry. You're seeing all the banks collapsing. They're underwater. Uh, so a lot of people taking their money out and putting it with bigger banks because they're scared they're going to lose their money. So fear and panic always creates opportunity. And whether it's real estate, cars, or stocks, in March 2020, as stocks went down 30%, people that bought, they were contrarian, they made a killing, right? So you can use that. Of course, it's easier said than done. But as you take risk and be a contrarian and you make money and you have success with it, your balls get bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I think people want to jump from zero to the million level. And it's like, mm. no, start with the $100,000 house yeah. and, then a and you work up to it. Yeah, baby steps. And you talk a lot about patience, which I really respect that. And yeah, I know I'm impatient. I'm like, I want to get this. I want this. It's like, yeah. Well, let's enjoy it. And actually, sometimes patience has a lot of advantages. Yeah, but the key is to a start, right? If you don't start and you're just always waiting for a better deal, you could be my age, 52, and you don't have nothing. But if you start 30 years ago like me with that first house with 1300 bucks and turn it into $200 million in real estate, $30 million worth of cars, hey, you're on top of the mountain. You're getting there. So those are the babyest steps, right? In the real estate portfolio, what's been like the biggest win you've had and the biggest loss? In real estate, my biggest win is going to be this deal if I you know, sell it. My biggest loss was six-story building I bought for $17 million. It was a single tenant. It was a subsidiary of Boeing, USA, United Space Alliance. They used to handle all the communication for a space shuttle. And they didn't get the contract from NASA. I got a FedEx envelope with one page in there telling me they're going to vacate. And my heart dropped. So $5 million cash down, gone. That was my biggest loss in real estate, single deal. And my biggest win, 50 million, if I close this deal on one property. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. How come you're comfortable sharing your numbers? Well, I usually don't, but <laughs> but because I have proof to show it. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have any investors. And that's the thing, I'm not Grant Cardone. You know, I don't have a fund. So I bought one building with my students for three and a half million bucks. It's the only one I have partners in. 
The rest I own 100%. Cars, everything, houses, you know. Like I have a $40 million home, but I don't put it on Instagram. Hey, $40 million home, you know. <laughs> What's a $40 million home like? A lot of maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I pay 22000 a month property tax. My fire insurance is 10000 a month. So 32000 between insurance and property tax. It's a lot of money. Every 10 months, it's three hundred twenty grand. A third of a million gone. But I don't feel the ding because I'm used to it. My last home I sold for $10 million, and I had bought that in 2008 from a bank in the same neighborhood. My house, I bought it for $19.6 million seven years ago. It's worth forty. Why? Because it's double lot, ocean view in the best neighborhood in Southern California, Pelican Hill. And it was a great value because the dirt is worth $20 million. So I use the same concept of value analyzing on commercial, residential, even cars. And that's why I think I'm successful in all my investments. How many companies do you have, by the way? Yeah, I have a lot of different companies. Do you have any idea how many? Six of them I can count right away on my fingers. But there's a lot others. I invest in a silent partner. I own a small percentage of a bank. I have several other companies. I just say LP, limited partner. But the ones I'm actively managing, uh, there's six. Okay. And then for like owning a house like this, do you have passive income? Do you have like income from your own real estate and that's what covers the lifestyle? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, my businesses make money plus I have real estate, cash flow. Yeah. They're not empty buildings. I mean, I have shopping centers, this building, like I have a mortgage company upstairs, pay me a lot of money. I got two or three buildings that I buy for flip that are vacant. Those are like reposition play. So, but when you have a big portfolio, obviously you have cash flow and some are value add that you're flipping. It's a lot of fluid. A lot of things happening. And I also make money with cars. Well, we're definitely going to talk about that. How do you manage all these businesses? I don't sleep much. I drink a lot of coffee. I get up between 4 and 5 in the morning. So I respond to all the emails because I got properties in four different states. And sometimes those are two hours ahead. And I start getting emails early. And then I kind of go through my to-do list for the day and prioritize my day. By 7, I'm working out sauna, cold shower, get my third cup of coffee by 8 in the morning from a Starbucks. And I'm over here at the office, take lunch about 11.30. And then afternoon, I have a couple of meetings usually. And then I have to have a cigar by myself and regroup what happened all day. Yeah. And then get ready for the next day. So army lifestyle. Cool. Yeah. Also, you call me earlier, like, hey, I got one hour to, and a half to chat with you, be here. And we're like, okay, we got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, what, what is the team? Do you have like a core team that helps you facilitate this? Or is it yeah, mostly you? Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, you, without a team, I mean, you, it's not a one-man army by any means. You got to have a general manager on every company that reports to me and I keep in touch with them. It's not easy juggling all that, but my companies aren't like Elon Musk either. You know, they're much smaller companies. They're more manageable. And I like it. I mean, I like to lift more weight, you know. Mm. It's like weightlifting, right? Every day you can bench press 200 for three years. Well, you can keep adding weight every other week and you get up to 400 pounds bench press. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. If I'm managing six companies, maybe five years from now I'm managing four or maybe 10. But, you know, it depends how much you want to lift. For people out there that are either starting out or have money, how have you thought about where to put your money? Well, it's a function of what the opportunities are at the time. For me, the past eight, nine years been cars. But now I'm going to be gearing up to buy real estate because that's what's going to be coming down the pipeline. But real estate, cars, 
and obviously invested some in other companies as LPs. But real estate is one I'm comfortable with. I would say I make my money mostly in real estate and I have my passion with cars. Okay. What's your definition of the American dream? Definition of American dream is you can just wake up in the morning and decide to take off for two months anywhere you want to go in the world and not have to worry about paying the bills. Basically, financial freedom. And do you think this still exists? Of course. I mean, if you really want it bad enough and you're patient, anyone can do it. I believe that. But you got to have the drive, you got to have the hunger, and you got to have the never give up mentality because surely you're going to get to a point you're going to have a dead end and you're going to have to make a U-turn and find a different route. Hmm. I'm assuming you think you achieved it. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> My wife is still tells me that I'm in denial sometimes. <laughs> well, you know, when you're accumulating wealth, more cars, this, that, sometimes you don't stop to kind of enjoy it because you're always hustling. But yeah, I think I've achieved it. What's it like to drive around in a Rolls Royce? As an immigrant, you yeah. come here, didn't speak English, didn't have money, lived in a Datsun, and now you're driving like a, this hundreds of thousands of dollar car. Yeah, well, I have four Rolls Royces. <laughs> I got two drop heads, a Don, and a brand new Ghost I bought for my wife. You know, I hate to say it, but to me it's normal because I've been driving Rolls Royce since 2004. When Phantom came out, I bought a brand new Phantom. Back then, the lease payment on that car was more than my mortgage payment. But everybody said, you're crazy. I said, no, no, you got to get used to having a bigger overhead. And I went to the Rolls Royce in Newport Beach, and I told them, give me the highest payment you can give. <laughs> they said, you mean lowest? And I said, no, no, highest. So reduce the residual, whatever they do in leases, you know. I said, just, I want to pay down the, basically the lease. I want to have less payment in year five when I want to buy it than, you know, normally you guys do. So my payment was like 5,800 bucks for a 2004 Phantom. <laughs> How much was it? Over $5,000. A month? Yeah. And these 2004. That's an interesting mentality. You wanted the pressure. I was in early 30s. Hey, you got to put yourself through a stress test. Yeah. But, you know, to me, it was a saving because I was going to keep the car. So if I'm paying, you know, the loan on it quicker. And at the time, I financed my home, 15-year mortgage. And then the first shopping center I bought, which Mr. Williams, my landlord, you know, guided me to buy. That one's seller financing. And seller says, oh, I can give you 20 years. And no, give me 10 years. Fully amortized. So my payment was higher. So when I sold it three years later, I doubled my money. I had built a lot more equity because I was paying it down. So that's another, you know, advice I have for people. Pay yourself first. By doing that, I mean, pay your loans down quicker because hmm. you're building equity. How else do you like to enjoy your money? Traveling, cars, splurging on my wife. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> yeah. And giving back. I do a lot of charity and it feels great. What things are you cheap on? Cheap on? Yeah. What things oh. do you not spend a lot of money on? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm trying to see what I'm... you should ask my wife. <laughs> 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 I don't like to spend, you know, like $10,000 on a bottle of wine. I honestly don't appreciate it. <laughs> to me, I can have a $30 bottle of wine. It does the same thing. You know, I enjoy it just as much. I guess maybe watches is a $100,000 watch, but I mean, I could buy a million dollar watch, but I think it's waste of money. <laughs> maybe high fashion. <laughs> this is not something that matters as much to you or? No, I don't appreciate it as much. Maybe. I don't know, but I'm typically not cheap. Come on. I charter jets all the time. Obviously, jewelry, handbags, you know, on special occasions. 
I like to treat my wife. Just vacationing, I would say, probably is my biggest splurge. I love vacationing even to Lake Como. And I'm actually getting a villa for a couple of weeks, taking my entire family to Lake Como. How much does a private jet to charter cost? Yeah, it's about 12000 an hour. An hour. So if you're going across America a few hours? Yeah, like when we go to Cabo, it's like between forty to 50000 bucks just for the three days we go. And then how much is like the hotels and like this experience? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> probably another fifteen twenty. I mean, that's a lot more than sometimes people make in a year. I also wonder if it's better, right? Like when you're spending 100000 to go to Lake Como and get a villa or 100000 to go to Cabo, like what's that kind of experience like to spend at those levels? Well, I mean, vacationing is the best money is spent because you can't get time back, right? This one hour we spent, it's not going to come back. It's gone. So as you get older, you appreciate time. When you vacation, you're really spending your time with yourself and your loved ones. So it's the best money is spent. Do you have any regrets, like working too hard? Was the money worth it? Regrets? Like I had an accident, my friend died in my car. No, it's crazy. What happened? Oh, I was drinking and driving. Young, dumb, you know, I stopped making money and I was partying, single, and drinking, driving. That's my biggest regret because my friend that was in my car, you know, that my car spun out, lost control. He wasn't wearing seatbelt. He got ejected and unfortunately he passed away. That was a very dark moment in my life, but I would say that's my biggest regret in life, being irresponsible, you know, young, doing stupid things, which I know a lot of young kids do, but, you know, sometimes you can't undo things like that, right? Yeah, you pay for that for the rest of your life. Damn, man. Yeah. I'm glad to share that message because I do think, like, myself in the past have done it. I think a lot of people do it, so it's good to remember, like, it's not, you're not guaranteed to be safe there. Yeah. It was a very unfortunate accident, but I take the blame because I was the one driving. And I was under the influence. So it's definitely something that most people will not really get it until it happens to them. But that's one thing I regret the most. Do you feel like you work too much? I don't work too much now. I used to work too much, you know, before. But now that I have my kids, like right now on weekends, even if somebody pays me a million bucks, I wouldn't show up to do a seminar or work somewhere. Now, I do seminars for my students, but that's because it's part of the program. But I'm saying as a speaker or a job or a gig, you know, I wouldn't work on weekends because I'd rather spend that with my kids. How do you define success for yourself? Well, to me, success is having the freedom to choose what you want to do when you wake up and being able to give back, which I think I've achieved. So it's not how much money you have in the bank or how much is your net worth. It's being able to have the freedom. I think a lot of people want freedom. Yeah. That is a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go learn more about Manny's courses in business at mannykoshbin.com. That's M-A-N-N-Y-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N.com. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's grab a poke bowl together. I really do like poke bowls straight up. They're healthy, nutritious. I feel like underrated. Before you go, tweet at me, at Noah Kagan, TikTok, Instagram, all those other fun places. So let me know what you think of the episode. Literally no one does this anymore because no one makes it to the end of the episodes. I was looking at the stats on Spotify. It's like 50% of y'all make it this far. You guys are completers. Like you guys start a book, you finish it, even if you hate it. And I love you for that. Also remember to go to check out tidycow.com. That is one of the latest and greatest products we have on AppSumo. It is a tool I use to schedule podcast guests as well as customer interviews for AppSumo. It is free to use and it's only 29 bucks for life if you want some of the premium features. Instead of using a service like Calendly, which has a subscription, ugh, 
Go to tidycal.com and get it for free and start using it for yourself. Finally, a couple shout-outs to the amazing team who makes all this happen. Jason at podcasttech.com. Damn, I love you, man. We've been doing this a long time. Good stuff. And thank you to Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, Jen, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all help put together. And finally, huge shout-out to the AppSumo Business Development Team. Specifically, I'm going to give a shout-out to Jeff, Caitlin, Avi, Tarver, who helped close Chatbase. This is a product. I don't think it's live on the site right now, but it is a AI chat GPT tool that helps you do your own chatbot for customer support. We are using this on TidyCal, SendFox, and some of the other AppSumo original products. And it is amazingly effective at answering the questions, directing people where to go. And so especially if you're a one-person team or you just like saving money or you have a support team and you want to help them, check out Chatbase. It might still be on AppSumo. And if it's not, sign up to the AppSumo.com newsletter so you don't miss amazing deals like this. Have a perfect day. Who's your favorite artist? Who's mine? Mine's Dali. I've liked it ever since I saw him. And then now he's like super popular, obviously.